Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have Roger Dickey and he has been doing quite a, a lot here in the venture space right now with Gigster. So would love to hear more from Roger. Roger, welcome aboard. Thank you. Good to be here. So your background is uh, pretty much as an engineer. Uh, that's how you got started with this entire entrepreneurial journey. So you tried at one point to get a job in, in Facebook by literally showing up to their office. So what was the story really behind this? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was interesting. So my company sent me to Silicon Valley, the company I worked at in Austin, uh, for a conference. And I had believed uh, very strongly in Facebook for a while and had been telling all my friends that, you know, they're the next, the next great company and that the Internet was going to be social and that they'd kind of take over the whole thing. So I, I wanted to be involved really in any way I could. Uh, and the most obvious idea was a job. So uh, when I went down for the conference, I, uh, I took a little time off and went down to Palo Alto uh, to University Avenue where their office was. And I happened to get there on the train around 5 or 5.30 p.m. So uh, it was convenient because that's when some people were leaving. Uh, I actually saw Mark Zuckerberg going in. Uh, and then I saw various people coming out. And one of them stopped to talk to me. And he was actually the same guy who writes the uh, the uh, interview puzzles that they used to have for engineers. So uh, I, I got his card and sent him my resume and never heard back. <laughs> and uh, I I didn't really have the hustle at the time to bump the email again. I thought, oh, they probably, you know, I guess they I guess they don't want to interview me. In reality, they were probably too busy. Who knows? But uh, it ended up working itself out when I started the Facebook app company. Right. Got it. Got it. And the, when when was this? This was 2007. 2007. So, uh, got it, got it. So, I mean, it was the time where Facebook was starting, I mean, already exploded, but, uh, you know, it obviously had a little bit more to to go. And uh, and at this time is when you met a friend that was making about 8,000 bucks a day. And, and perhaps this is a time where you realized that doing corporate America was maybe not the best for you. Is that right? Huh. Yeah, actually. So uh, mostly right. I think he was making about a thousand dollars a day with this app that uh, took him something like eight hours to build something he finished really quickly. Uh, It was this I think it was called like My Happy Zoo, basically, basically a Web page with some divs on it. 
and essentially like a grid. And you could put an animal in a spot on the grid. And when your friends visited your zoo, they could see where your animals were. And I think he had some ads on it or he was charging a dollar per animal, something like that. But uh, the project was making an insane amount of money. So I, I actually sat down with him at a, at a Happy Donuts in Palo Alto. And, and I said, hey, I'm really interested in Facebook. How did you get this to work? And <clears throat> what was great about that was he, he kind of demystified it for me. He broke it down and said, hey, here are all the things I did. I started, started from zero. Like, now I'm here. Uh, you know, you know, here were the steps that I went through. It's pretty easy to learn. You use this API, et cetera. Uh, and that was a pretty inspiring moment because, yeah, at that point, I did realize how easy it would be to try something different than corporate America. Uh, and, and, and I had kind of always been entrepreneurial. I'd always worked on little side projects. But my concern was, uh, was as an engineer, I didn't understand marketing. So uh, Facebook obviated that because if you build something that people like, uh, it sort of is shared virally and uh, can be you know, very successful with no effort from the developer on marketing. So that was compel- compelling to me. You know, I thought, well, if I build something cool, it'll kind of just be able to take off. Um, it turned out that that eventually managed to happen. <laughs> Got it. And this, this led to uh, giving birth to Curiosoft, right? So uh, would you mind telling us more about this initiative, Roger? Uh, not at all. Uh, so I started Curiosoft with this friend of mine who showed me the Facebook app that he built. He had this philosophy that, uh, that Facebook was a great uh, marketing engine for a virtual world for kids that he was building, uh, similar to uh, Habo Hotel, which I think sold to Disney for around $600 million. He knew he could build something better, and I, I, I believe that he could. So you know, our philosophy was we'll partner up. You know, Roger will focus on the Facebook side. Um, you know, he'll focus on the uh, building this Haba Hotel competitor. And the Facebook apps will cross-promote traffic into this, this kids' virtual world. And I, I sort of fell in love with the, uh, with the marketing that I was doing. I, I, I liked the apps more than the idea of this virtual world. And uh, I started to believe there was a real business in the apps. So at that point, we actually fractured. Uh, you know, and I, I focused just on the apps and he went back to focusing on this virtual world, uh, which is sort of an interesting story because it's allegorical to, you know, how Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook. If I understand it right, the original Facebook face mash was a marketing hack for this other project that he was working on, which, right. uh, became more successful than the other project. Got it. Got it. Got it. And, and so curious of basically like, uh, very much into the gaming space, and and you know there was a lot of a lot of really good stuff happening, and, and especially like uh, with Singa as well there on the picture. You were you were going into I've I've heard that you were going into the FBI website to just grab name of drugs that you would just like plaster all over <laughs> your, your game. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know where you heard that, but that is <laughs> that is true. Uh, I I didn't really do any drugs, and I didn't know where to find pictures <laughs> of drugs. So I literally went to the FBI website, and I there there are a lot more types of drugs than I realized. I think at the time I could have right. maybe named three, you know, like LSD, marijuana, like coke, <laughs> stuff like that. And apparently there's something called Mexican brown heroin, and there's just the list goes on and on. Right. So I added these to the game. Uh, we had a game at the time uh, that was like a virtual drug dealing simulation called Dope Wars, where you you play a drug dealer. And uh, you basically go in and you try to buy drugs low and sell them high. You use the profits to buy weapons. You 
you join a drug cartel and then you and everybody else, your weapons add together, you fight other drug cartels, uh, and you're fighting for control of the turf, which is where the drugs are dealt. So there's kind of a, uh, you know, cyclical nature to it, uh, or, you know, yeah, there's a, essentially it, you, you want to get more territory cause you can deal better. So, so anyway, yeah, we had at some point a lot of different types of drugs on there and, uh, it was a funny game. I remember when the Zynga people first met me, I think I showed up in like a suit or something and they're like, is this Roger? <laughs> Cause they imagined I'd, I'd, I'd look pretty different when they met me. Oh, I can't imagine. Oh my God. I can't even imagine if your parents would get a hold of your history on the internet or perhaps your girlfriend at the time, you know, they might think that you had a second, a second type of life, you know, that they were not uh, uh, familiar with, but, but anyhow, how much revenue were you doing? We were doing about seven or $8,000 a day, all from ads, which, uh, which is one of the things that I think Zynga found so compelling about the acquisition. Zynga had really cracked virtual goods on Facebook. Um, which of course has been around in Japan and other markets for a while, but it was just coming to the United States. Uh, so I think their M and a department, you know, which was one guy named Andrew, I think when Andrew saw dope wars, he thought, you know, wow, Roger's doing eight K a day. Now, if we add virtual goods to this thing, it's going to 10 X, um, you know, and, and that'll be a really nice property for us to have. So, uh, so, so, so for them, it felt kind of very symbiotic uh, partnership. Uh, and they came after me pretty hard at, at first. I didn't really even know what they were asking, you know, cause I'd never built a company, never sold a company. And I was very mistrustful. Uh, I thought they were trying to steal my secrets or something like that at various conspiracy theories about what they were doing. Uh, and then after, as I mentioned, my partner and I fractured after that happened, uh, you know, I, I didn't really want to go it alone and the prospect of moving to San Francisco and, you know, getting a little payday out of it and working with other really smart people, uh, was compelling. Um, I, I knew, I pretty much felt like I knew that Zynga would win the space. Um, I had another acquisition offer from, and I think it was higher, but I took Zynga's acquisition offer anyways, uh, because I knew they'd win. And I, I asked for as much stock as I could in the deal. Um, and that ended up being the right decision because, uh, they, they went on to be very successful after that. Got it. And how many, how many people did you have involved with the business uh, at this point? A uh, grand total of zero full-time employees outside of myself. Uh, wow. I was, I was managing a variety of contractors. Uh, I think I had a couple design contractors and I had a couple of development contractors that I met online that were helping with various parts of the business. Uh, I was trying to recruit from the university of Texas at Austin. And I was trying to get kids to drop out of school and work on Facebook apps. And people are like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go get a job at Microsoft after I graduate. Like that's the promised land for me. You know, that's right. that Microsoft sounds way more compelling than, you know, than Facebook, like who knows where that's going to go. Uh, so, you know, obviously they were all very wrong and I tried my, you know, to no avail on the full-time side, but I did manage to work with a couple of them as contractors and, uh, I found an amazing contractor, uh, essentially was sort of an angel that saved the business at a really difficult time on the DevOps side, because our servers were scaling so quickly that, uh, it was kind of out of control. So, uh, you know, there were, there were a couple people who were pivotal to the success of the business, none of them full-time employees. Got it. And the, what was the process like of the, because you end up doing the acquisition with, uh, with Singa. And what, what was that M&A process uh, like? If you could give us like the, 
the inside and and what what was what did that look like? Well, they were very early at the time. Uh, they had about 30 employees, maybe not all of them full time, something like 20 to 30 employees. At the time, Mark Pincus, the CEO, uh, I believe had a strategy to grow the team using acquisitions. So yeah. uh, essentially he was doing a roll up of the space. There were there were a ton of indie developers who were making apps and one of the interesting things about the you could see the daily active users of everybody else's apps. So it sort of created that almost like this and if somebody was growing faster than me, I'd go to their app and I'd try to figure out what they were doing. Uh, and uh, I think Zynga was able to use that same directory, that same index to identify developers who met certain characteristics. So for example, they had apps, let's say that had 50,000 or 100,000 daily active users, uh, looked like they were well-developed and scalable, but they hadn't yet hit like the million active user mark. Um, yeah. So they, they, they try to find apps that had the potential to grow a lot and buy them before they got big and then uh, bring in those developers. So when they, when they bought around the time they bought my company, I think they bought four other companies that were app developers, much like me, just these guys working out of their garage uh, who'd built various apps that had happened to take off. Uh, yeah. And they put all of us together and we were the early product team. Um, so very entrepreneurial people. Um, Which I, which I think was good because that was the DNA that we needed at that time. And and this was obviously when when you did this transaction, this was um, if I if I understand right, this was a stock for stock type of deal. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so sorry, you asked about the acquisition process itself. I mean, it started off as kind of a kind of a dance. You know, as I said, they would they would message me and I it wouldn't really respond. And then I did a couple of phone calls with them and sort of rebuffed most of the offers. And the offers kept going up. Uh, I think it ended somewhere around 4x the initial offer they made, just because I was so I wasn't even I wasn't trying to negotiate with them or play play mind games. I, I earnestly didn't want to sell. Uh, I, I wanted to stay independent. So you know, I, I was a very inexperienced negotiator at the time, but you know, I just ended up accidentally making some of the right moves. I think in uh, rejecting the early offers. Yeah. At the end of the day, we agreed on a number and they they gave me the choice of taking it in stock or cash. And actually with stock, they the number was higher because they wanted to preserve their cash for other acquisitions. Uh, yeah. So I you know that was fine with me because that's what I wanted to do as well. Uh, and uh, you know, there were a lot of terms in the in the deal that were really odd, really non-standard, because Pincus had this idea at the time of creating sort of this set of, of silos within the company, almost like companies within a company. So I had these ter I had terms like a revenue share, and which you don't usually see for executives. Uh, so, you know, after a while, so I signed that deal, but then after a while they had to go renegotiate all the deals because they didn't want their executives to have revenue shares. It created odd incentives in, in the company. So there were a few mistakes like that that they made. Um, But, you know, other than that, you know, fairly, uh, you know, they, 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 were, they were really scrappy, but uh, the, the process mostly worked right. And this was, a, at the end of the day, I mean, you've, you've become a prolific angel investor, and, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But this was, you know, sort of speak, your first angel investment. Is that right? Yeah, like that's actually how I, that's how I used to term it. Um, you know, as, as some 
kid from Texas, uh, you don't really have the chance to angel invest out in companies in Silicon Valley, especially if you've never been there before and know one person who lives there. <laughs> so yeah. uh, this to me was a golden opportunity to make an investment. And I, I felt like at that age, I didn't need a couple million dollars in cash, you know, or wh whatever the offer was, uh, you know, because, you know, some of that comes out in taxes and then, you know, you're not really retired on that number necessarily. So I, I figured I should buy a lottery ticket with it instead. Um, and, you know, I, I would recommend that to other founders. If, if you're selling a company, the ideal scenario is to sell to, to another startup that has very high potential. Uh, and if, if you're able to do that, then you can see a very outsized level of growth from the level from, from kind of the, uh, the exit dollar value. Got it. And obviously you, you closed this when there were 30 employees about the, that's the time that you joined. So yes. I would assume that the, the multiple on the return that you got was, was pretty high. Something like, I, I think I heard you say around a hundred X, is that right? Well, at one point, the stock was worth 100x the acquisition value. Uh, it, it didn't yeah. it didn't end that way because, uh, you know, as, as you can see uh, online, the stock didn't do as well as they thought it would. I think it opened at yeah. $10. It went to 15 uh, and then it, uh, you know, f it fell to, to seven, I think, when the 180 day lockup period for shareholders opened. Uh, yeah. And of course, when something's been at 15 and you see it at seven, you're not excited to sell it at the seven level. So a lot of us waited, uh, you know, and then it came down from seven to six and six to five. And at five, I actually thought, you know what, I should probably sell this, uh, you know, cause it's, it was around that level for months, but I was traveling and I was, I was going to call my broker to put an order in to sell all of it. Uh, and then I got distracted and I woke up one morning and it was at three. <laughs> uh, and then over the, remaining months. So at that point, I'm definitely not going to sell it. And over the remaining, the next couple of months, it went down to two. Uh, and I started checking it like multiple times a day and it just became this sickness. So, so I said, look, whenever it gets up to whatever level, like four or something, just sell all of it. And eventually it did. So they, 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 they dumped it, but it was, it was definitely not at the level that all of us were hoping it would be. Yeah. Got it. And, uh, and basically, I mean, I, I'm sure that this was as well one of your most fulfilling experiences from a learnings perspective. So what, what were some of, the, uh, some of the learnings that you got from joining Singa during the early days and, and you know, being part of this rocket ship? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, I think I learned more in that three-year period than I ever have any other three-year period of my life. Um, so I, I'd say I learned a couple things from that, that overall period. Um, one is the power of a secret, uh, what, what Peter Thiel calls a secret. So something, you know, about the world or a market in the business sense that other people don't know. Um, I was one of the only people that I knew that was excited about Facebook or that believed in Facebook. So that's kind of what got me there in the first place was that I, I, I had a secret that, you know, other people had too, but maybe only a few thousand people in the world. Uh, so that, that was, I think what opened the door, uh, I would say, so, so I think you can definitely learn a lot if you're at the right company. And for some people who are starting companies, I, I always tell them you should consider working at a, at a, you know, high growth startup with a great founder instead as, as a learning experience, so, something else, it's maybe, maybe two other things. Uh, so, so one is that at Zynga, and this is maybe 
you know, a little lower level than entrepreneurship, but for the, the entrepreneurs that are listening, who, uh, who consider themselves product people, um, at Zynga, a distribution and monetization were part of the product, not some bolted on department. Um, so I remember it being interesting that one day we hired a CMO, uh, and I think they must, they met, they lasted two or three months before they left, uh, because we realized that marketing just wasn't, uh, and the last thing there is, I'd say, uh, being being you know, kind of founding team or a key executive at a hot startup like that can really massively propel your career. So most of the benefit I got from the Zynga experience, it wasn't you know any amount that my stock was worth or anything like that. It was the people that I was able to meet through that. Uh, so while we were going through an IPO, everybody wanted to meet Zynga executives. You know, if you were from Zynga, you could get coffee with basically anybody in the valley. And I took full advantage of that opportunity. Um, I did something like 30 or 40 coffee meetings a week for six months. Uh, and that was valuable. I mean, I, I might've met like a third of the smart people in Silicon Valley in that time period. Um, and and I, I, I retain that network to this day, you know? So, so I think, you know, when, when you can take the opportunity to, uh, to, to kind of leverage a key point in your career to meet a lot of smart people, I would absolutely recommend doing that. Got it. So, so after this, uh, this experience, so you close the, the chapter with Singa and basically what you do is, is something that is, is, is really interesting. No, you, you go and become an angel investor and, uh, how, how, how was the transition from first you are a founder, then you go and join this rocket ship and then you say, okay, now let's, let's, let's take a look at betting on others. How, how was that transition for you? Well, it, you know, it was a fairly smooth one, uh, so I, I didn't get into angel investing full time. Uh, and I think there's, there's two ways, there's two right ways to be an angel investor. And, and one is, one is active and one is passive. Um, the active angel investors that, that I know do it full time. Um, they're constantly going to events, meeting people, going to incubator demo days, uh, maintaining relationships, with the best founders they know, you know, doing diligence on deals. You have to really spend a lot of time to be a successful investor because there's so much competition uh, in Silicon Valley. So that was never really my bias. Uh, my, my, my objective with angel investing was to meet, uh, to, meet, to meet a lot of smart people, to learn about the markets they were going after, uh, you know, to potentially go after some of those markets myself after I left Zynga. Uh, you know, not in a competitive way, but just, Hey, maybe there's an angle that somebody alerted me to that they're not going to pursue. Uh, you know, so it was, it was that, uh, and then it was, it was just, it was, it, it, it was, it was also a way to earn, to earn some extra money, you know, potentially, but you, you don't, you don't really see a lot of early angel portfolios with high returns. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was mainly the first two. It was just a, an enjoyable learning experience. Uh, so I transitioned into it fairly slowly and I, I kept, I, I stayed relatively passive. Um, if somebody who I'd met and had a relationship with and knew and believed in was starting a company, I would write them a check. I didn't really find myself going outbound. I didn't find myself, uh, you know, playing the role of an active investor. Got it. And how many, how many companies, let's say up until now, have you invested so far as an angel? Uh, around 80 in the last eight years. Wow. That's a, a fairly large number, uh, I would say, for being a passive uh, angel. So 
So let me ask you this. When you invest in these companies as an angel, it seems that, that for you, timing, market, team, and product are critical factors, at least from, from, from some of the stuff that I've, that I've read and, and heard. Can you explain a bit and go a little bit into detail about each one of those, why they are so important to you? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so, so I, I would say market is, is maybe, is maybe the most important, uh, market. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of things investors look for that I think fall under the same umbrella. So market, uh, problem, you know, customer need, uh, all of those are sides of the same coin. Um, essentially that's the idea that, that a founder is going after. Um, and I think most ideas can be expressed in around 10 words, most good ideas. Uh, so something like, you know, Instacart is, uh, you know, order, order groceries on your phone delivered by freelancers. Uh, Uber is, um, Uber is an unlicensed, you know, basically unlicensed taxis that you can order from your phone. Um, you know, so things like that, if you'd, if you handed somebody that idea, if I think I would say, I'd argue there are in the tens of founders who, if you handed them that idea in 2008, 2009, when Travis started Uber, they could have uh, had roughly the same level of success. Um, I, I actually argue that the idea is a very, very large component of how well a company does. You know, you hear ideas are a dime a dozen. Uh, I, I think ideas are at least half of the value that goes into a company because you can have, you know, a highly capable uh, executor going after the wrong idea and the other essentially going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. And I've seen that a lot. I've had friends do that. Uh, I've had seen companies that I've invested in go, go down that road. So uh, the idea means a lot to me. Um, so that's that's kind of the first thing that I look at. And again, obviously, that encompasses market. So, you know, if, if Uber is unlicensed taxis, well, how big is that market? Well, taxis was a large market even before Uber got to it. Now they've grown it. I think it was I think uh, it was something like 40 billion or 60 billion dollars in the U.S. Uh, right. So, you know, great uh, uh, a great market, a real need, and a simple a, a simple solution to that need uh, are, are things I look for. Uh, and so, I think I think that comes first. Um, after that, of course, it's the team. So, you know, I think I, I think past experience is you know the best predictor of future performance. And uh, I, I look pretty carefully at what the team has done before, um, whether or not they have, for, you know, former exits or startups they've done isn't as important. Although obviously that's that's a clear indicator. Uh, but you know, I, I, I look for like, has this person spent their life trying to be the best at something? Um, have they done a hundred projects in some area? Uh, you know, so e even if it's uh, you know, let's say it's an Olympic athlete, well, they've uh, they're obviously very competitive and. The projects that they've done have been competing in various, uh, let's say, you know, competing in various races or whatever. Uh, so, you know, I think if you have somebody who's uh, who's who just has a consistent pattern of setting goals and achieving those goals, and you know, they're very they're they're, they're uh, very competitive and have had a lot of success, uh, then they can be a successful founder. So, I definitely look for that. And if they're not, you know, like best in the world at something or close to best in the world, then it doesn't make sense to invest because you may as well find a better person who's working on the same idea, which you often can. Uh, after that, you know, I, I do look at some of the more traditional things like uh, how much traction do they have? What have they launched? I might interview some customers, but the, the, the more work you do 
along that line, you're becoming more of an active investor and running a proper diligence process. And I, I often don't have time for that. So I filter very hard up front on market and team. And then I, I kind of put a smaller amount of work in, into everything else. Got it. Uh, market and team, definitely. And and just besides that, because I think that the founder really, it's a, it's a critical piece. Is there any patterns that you typically, I mean, you've invested in a ton of companies, you've been an operator yourself, and I think that that really gives you an advantage over the other angels that perhaps are like senior executives or, or stuff like that. So my, my, in corporate America, so my question here is in the founders that you meet with, is there a certain patterns that you've been able to recognize that are repeated on those ones that really get you excited about making an investment because you see there's real future potential? That's a that's a tough question. Uh, I don't know if anybody has a good answer to that. Um, I I can tell you. Uh, so mo- most of my patterns are around you know kind of the the thing I said about a hundred projects. Uh, you know, so somebody who's just somebody who has a history of working really hard and and winning at something, whatever it is. You know, again, it doesn't even have to be technology. Um, uh, you know, I think there, there, there are elements of somebody's personality, the, the level of charisma, leadership ability that somebody has, um, how good they are at expressing themselves. I think uh, a fundraising pitch is uh, it's, it's not unlike all the other pitches that a founder has to do uh, when you're pitching candidates, uh, when you're pitching other investors, when you're pitching customers, founders are always selling. So, uh, you know, I think when, when you're, when you're being pitched by a founder, a big thing you're looking for is just their ability to sell. Um, I think somebody had a great quote, uh, maybe Paul Graham about how every job, you know, when you get to the top of the career ladder, it just becomes sales. Um, you know, the president is a salesperson, you know, uh, CEOs are salespeople. Everybody essentially becomes a salesperson, the higher up they get. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's something I definitely look for. Like, can this person can, can this person capture the imagination of customers? Can they uh, can they get customers to switch from whatever product they're using? Can they poach a key employee from Google or Facebook? Um, if they can't convince me that you know that that their company is interesting, they probably can't do that. Got it. So shifting gears a little bit here, Roger, uh, you in 2013 build your most recent company. So that Gigster. So you want to be the world's engineering department, if I understand it right. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Certainly. Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll uh, preface this by saying uh, I've left Gigster in June. I don't know if, I don't know if you were aware of that. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something I'm actually announcing pretty soon. Uh, and and we'll, we'll announce the new CEO as well. Uh, but but I, I can kind of get into to how we started the company, if that's helpful. Uh, so, so we had a thesis around the future of work, uh, back in 2013, myself and the other early founding members, uh, and future of work is amorphously defined, but the way we defined it was we thought work would be changed by marketplaces and artificial intelligence, uh, and particularly the intersection of those two things. So rather than hiring, you know, massive full-time teams of employees and having them, you know, do work at a human pace. Uh, people would be high, you know, highly lever- heavily leveraging contractors with new forms of employment, maybe even new forms of management, and then augmenting those contractors with artificial intelligence uh, and data to make them more efficient at doing their jobs, more efficient and more reliable. 
Um, so those were, you know, I'd say efficiency and reliability were kind of these two end posts that we found really interesting for a workforce. So we tried a lot of ideas. I mean, a, 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 you know, as with the Facebook app company, where we tried 20 ideas. It was 19 to be exact. Uh, with before Gigster, we tried something like 23 or 24. Uh, and I would say they were around four or five themes. So you can think of each theme as kind of a hub and spoke. So the theme was the hub, and then we tried various spokes around each hub. Um, one of them was uh, this application uh, that would allow developers to get real-time help from other developers for a dollar a minute. And we must have tried three or four different versions of that. It failed for a lot of reasons. Uh, we tried something else that was around angel investors and how they network and interface together. Uh, we tr even tried something in personal finance, which was getting a bit far afield. Um, but the personal finance direction, oddly enough, at the end of the day, helped us get to Gigster. Or we, we asked the question, like, what's, what's, the, what's the best personal finance app you could imagine? Um, it's, it's a website or an app where you push a button and you just get money. Um, okay, well, how do we practically achieve that since we're not a mint? Uh, we allow people to do work to get money in, in a way that they want to do it. So uh, we, we had this philosophy, too, of designing products that we would be a user of ourselves. Um, which I, I think is a great way to approach things as an entrepreneur, because if you wouldn't be a user yourself, it's very hard to tell if you've built the right product. Um, you know, the, the feedback loop that goes from you to customers and back to you can often be a very, very lossy cycle. Uh, and you're, you're just not going to do as good of a job as someone else who would truly be a user. Uh, so we thought, okay, let's say we wanted to earn money and we wanted to do freelance work for somebody. What kind of work would that be? Well, we're developers. So we made a marketplace for developers, but there were a lot of those that existed already. So we found a couple of twists that were very important and I'd say pivotal to the success. We put together a landing page that encapsulated that vision. Uh, we built it in about three days, put it online on Hacker News and Product Hunt. And uh, we got, uh, I would say, I think we got around $3 million of business submitted in the first 24 hours. Wow. Uh, $3 million of development contracts that people needed filled. What we had essentially created was a build anything button, a button that you push and you get a high quality development team in 10 minutes is what the site used to say. Uh, because we were sitting there on the back end with, you know, a chat system, just responding to chats and matching people with developers. And I mean, those were really fun days. Everything moved really fast. Uh, we had a lot of early growth. We learned a lot. And, you know, then, I, you know, after about six months of that, we raised an A round from Andreessen and we had this idea of getting into enterprise because we knew that's where the real money was. We didn't want to compete in SMB. So Andreessen helped us get into enterprise and, uh, you know, uh, the rest, the rest is history. I mean, it's a, the, the company's doing very well now around, uh, something like 80 employees We're well into double digit millions in revenue. Uh, you know, very high NPS. Our competitors have an average NPS of zero. I think we're like 70. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's, that's great. Um, the network of freelance developers that we built is extraordinary. Uh, we have a thousand people, including Apple design award winners, Stanford computer science lecturers. We have cybersecurity researchers, MIT dropouts, rocket scientists, you name it. Like, a uh, roster of fascinating people that are very, very hard to hire uh, for our customers. So it ended up being a very compelling value proposition, I think, for really? all sides of the marketplace. Really cool. How much capital has been raised to date uh, that is known publicly for Gigster? 
uh, 32.5 million, including yeah, I was, I was, C, Series A and B. I was very impressed uh, when I when I saw the cap table. I mean, let, let me just read some of those so that the listeners can can really be as impressed as I was when reading it. So on the VC side, Greylock, Felicis Ventures, Bloomberg Beta, and Dreesen, which you were pointing to, or Redpoint. And then on the angel side, Justin Waldron, who was one of the co-founders of Singa, Ron Conway from SB Angel, Ashton Kutcher, Michael Jordan, Mark <laughs> Enyov, Adam D'Angelo, co-founder of Quora, and the guy that was the CTO of Facebook. I mean, how, how, how did you pull this off, Roger? I mean, this is like the, the, the red carpet of, 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 of investors. Well, I would say part of it is, uh, you know, that, that, that networking period that I spent after Zynga. Um, so I, you know, I, I had a lot of, a lot of these relationships already going into the business. Uh, you know, I, I already knew the guys at Felicis. Um, I tangentially knew some of the guys at Andreessen. Uh, I already knew the guy at Redpoint. Um, Mark Benioff, we met through our Andreessen investors. Um, Ashton Kutcher, I, I think we met him through, I think I got an intro to him through somebody that I knew well. Michael Jordan was another story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I haven't revealed the secret for uh, okay. how I ended up meeting him. Uh, I think appreciates his privacy, but uh, I spent something like four or five months uh, trying to get him in as an angel. Uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One is at, at Gigster, we, we don't intend to just serve the Silicon Valley echo chamber. Like I don't want to build software for a startup that's four blocks down the street for the rest of my life. Right. Uh, we, we wanted to really break into the broader enterprise market in the United States. And, uh, you know, we wanted, we wanted to get press in Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, New York city, you know, LA, we, we, we wanted to really break out because a lot of the media that we've been getting was like a TechCrunch article, you know, something like that. And those are great. And, you know, we worked with some incredible journalists there, but we, we wanted to break outside of Silicon Valley. So, you know, I, I asked myself, you know, who's a financial backer we could get on board, who's well-recognized, who's somebody that I personally like and look up to, and uh, who would command some attention from potential customers outside of Silicon Valley. And MJ was at the top of the list. So, uh, you know, I just, I did what I could. I tried all these different paths to get to him. And finally, uh, we managed to meet some of his people and got the deal done. It's amazing. That's really amazing. I mean, I, I definitely, after hearing this, I need to up my game with the coffees, which, uh, which is something <laughs> that, yeah, 2019 is the coffee year. So, uh, <laughs> anyways, so let me ask you this because I have a lot of respect for, for, for obviously you're a very knowledgeable guy. You've been around the block a few times. And I want to get your, your two cents on this. So there's a lot of people that are talking now about a market correction, right? There is a, the high volatility that we're seeing on the markets. And obviously, when, when that happens on the markets, then cash you know, becomes a little bit more expensive when one goes out to raise money. And obviously, once you're in the hyper growth path, you, know, it's, you just got to keep going and, and raising money. So how do you think this is going to affect the, the venture landscape when you know, this actual correction happens? And, and how do you think? founders should really prepare for this? Uh, it's funny you ask. I was having this conversation with a friend yesterday who's, 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 who's raising money. Um, I actually am in the process of raising money as well for, uh, for my new business that, that's, that's coming after Gigster. So it's, it's, it's been on my mind. Uh, you know, the thing with VC is it's, it's certainly a lagging indicator to, uh, to the rest of the markets. 
it's it's funny because it's like it's kind of lagging, but it's also leading in a in a more literal sense uh, because they're funding the companies that will be you know the next great kind of Nasdaq you know uh, entries. Uh, but so uh, so the thing is, I mean the firm the kind of firms that that we're talking to have raised you know massive funds. Uh, some of them recently, some of them in the last six months to a year, and they have to deploy those funds over some quantity of time. So, uh, you know, I get the sense that, you know, there's probably a six month to one year lag in the VC industry uh, because they're investing, they're investing out of, out of, out of a uh, fund that they, that they've, that, you know, that they raised before the correction happened. Uh, so, you know, I, I really don't think we felt it yet here in Silicon Valley in a big way. Uh, you know, people, people are talking about it and uh, there, there may be some founders who are prioritizing rounds. Uh, you know, early this year, I, I think there's just a lot of there's a lot of geopolitical uncertainty right now, due to you know certain situations that will go unnamed on this podcast. Uh, you know, and, and I think I think that that's going to be a boon for things like Bitcoin, and it's going to be difficult for a, a lot of other markets. Uh, but to, to answer your question, we haven't really seen it yet. I, I don't feel a squeeze. I don't feel like it's harder to raise money. I don't feel like valuations are suffering. Uh, they may mid mid year to the end of the year, though. Got it. Got it. Okay. And and in terms of like the next chapter, uh, Roger, I know that obviously you know this is still kind of like new and recent. But any hints that that you could give us as to what the next chapter for Roger is going to be? So it's not going to be unlike the previous two businesses that we talked about. Uh, Curiosoft and Gigster. Uh, we're going to employ the same uh, idea lab approach early days to experiment with ideas, this time in the consumer space. Uh, so I'm very excited to be getting back to my roots in consumer. I haven't spoken about this publicly yet, so uh, you're the first person who's hearing this, but uh, very, very excited to get back to those roots. Um, I, I, I really miss uh, some of the work I did at Zynga before Zynga. Uh, a lot of the consumer angel investments that I got involved with and even tried to help in, you know, small ways. Um, I've, I, I've always had an eye toward consumer, even as, even as Gigster grew and became more of an enterprise company. So, uh, very, very excited to throw my hat back in the ring there and, uh, see what we can come up with. Got it. Well, definitely excited as well to, to hear what that's going to be more in detail whenever you make the, the proper announcements. And uh, I want to ask you this, Roger, I mean, as I mentioned, I mean, you, you've done this for quite a while. So if you could go to the past and, you know, be able to sit down with your younger self and give yourself one piece of advice before you were, let's say, launching your first business, what would that be and why? Hmm. Let's see. Uh, I, I feel like it'd be more personal than professional, to be honest. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I think life can pass us by quickly and, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot to do in the professional realm that's, that's fun and, you know, competitive and rewarding. And, uh, it's, it's great to wake up every day and you know, cram as much knowledge into your head as you can. I, I love learning and a lot of what I do in my personal and professional life, uh, optimizes for as much learning as possible. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, I think it's, it's good to, you know, stop and smell the flowers a little bit, uh, and, you know, focus on, focus on kind of the, the personal side of life, uh, you know, as well, or at least in tandem. 
Um, that's actually something I spent last year focusing on. I took a, you know, about a six month break after Gigster. And, uh, I was, I was glad that I, I was glad that I did that for myself. And, you know, I think it's very easy to burn out. Um, and it's, you know, as people say, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So, uh, I, I, I actually, you know, look, looking back on, you know, college and post-college and even high school, uh, I, I definitely wish I worked a little bit less. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so Roger, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, I think my email would be good. Uh, so uh, you, you can reach me uh, at uh, rogerdickey2 at gmail.com. Um, so Roger Dickey and the number two. Fantastic. Well, Roger, it has been a pleasure and an honor to have you today here on the Dealmaker Show. Thank you so, so much. Certainly. Thank you, Alejandro. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.